be better. Think of them as grace-motivated goals. You want to eat better, perhaps, or get in better shape, or finish school, or start school, or whatever it might be. Maybe for you, it's, it's working on your bucket list, experiences you want to have in 2021. Climb a mountain, hike the Grand Canyon, see the pyramids. I don't know. Take me with you if you go. And those are fine, too. But here's my question. Do your grace-motivated goals include communion with God? Does your bucket list of experiences you want to have include fellowship with God, enjoyment of God? And if not, why not? Is seeing the pyramids far above fellowship with God on your bucket list? Is climbing that mountain or hiking the Grand Canyon a lot more important for you than experiencing God himself? What I hope happens today is that we might reorder our goals for 2021, if necessary. That we might reprioritize our, our bucket lists for 2021, if necessary. That communion with God, that fellowship with God in and through the Word of God would be at the top of the lists all year long. And Psalm 19, Psalm 19 is just the passage to help us do that. This is a, a wisdom psalm, it's called oftentimes, but I think you could consider it a hymn a hymn to God's revelation of himself in two ways. Here's the first. God's glory-declaring world. First thing you see here, God's glory-declaring world. Look at verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And the sense is, this is happening continuously. The heavens never stop declaring his glory. You might translate this, the heavens keep on declaring his glory. The sky above keeps on proclaiming. You see this in verse 2, don't you? Day to day, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The the idea, the imagery is, is of a bubbling spring gushing forth all the time, day after day, pouring out, gushing forth speech, wordless speech, revealing the knowledge of God. It's just pouring out from creation 24-7. As you see in verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world, it's called general or universal revelation, available to all. And we should marvel at this. We should marvel. This revelation of God, available to all, of his, his power. Think of this, a, a beam of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. I read this. If a beam of light started at the time of Christ 2,000 years ago, 
all the way to today, kept traveling 186,000 miles per second, that beam of light, 2,000 years later, would be 150th of the way across our Milky Way galaxy in 2,000 years. Isn't that amazing? The power of God, and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in our universe declaring His glory. Images, images from the Hubble telescope come to us from galaxies that are 13 to 15 billion light years away. And a light year is about 5.8 trillion miles. So I'll let you do the math on that. One light year, 5.8 trillion miles. The Hubble telescope is taking pictures of galaxies maybe 15 billion light years away. Joe, figure that out for us later on, please, okay? It's as if God wanted, to, wanted us to realize that omnipotence, his, his all-powerfulness, is not just a theological category to know, but something to live in awe of and marvel at. He is infinite in power, and he is wise and good as all creation around us Testifies. Every, every tree in this park is a marvel of God's goodness, his knowledge, his wisdom, his mercy. Every tree in your neighborhood shows this. Every plant, every animal. Or, or consider the human eye. The human eye, I read, can distinguish between two million and over seven million different colors. The human eye that God designed. Isn't that wisdom that designed your eye? Or the human brain with billions of neurons, trillions of synapses, storing up memories through biochemical processes that we don't fully understand. I read this, a man named Whitaker Chambers who was an American journalist and Soviet spy during Franklin Roosevelt's administration, he wrote a book saying that he was converted from atheism to Christianity while studying his daughter's ear. Now, I think there are other influences as well, but that was a key moment for him to see the wisdom of God in the human ear. All of creation, here's my point, all of creation is constantly screaming out, not only God exists, but he is powerful, wise, good, loving, and merciful. But, left to ourselves, we suppress this revelation, Romans 1 says. We, we push it down in our consciousness. We try to deny it. We shove it to the side. We close our eyes and ears as creation constantly declares the glory of God to us. So God's revelation through his world is great, but it has no power to transform the human heart in itself. For that reason, we need God's revelation in his word. And that's where this psalm goes next. That's what I want to focus on with you this morning. Secondly, God's soul transforming word. 
His soul-transforming word. We're going to think about verses uh, 7 through 9 in particular. There's a pattern in these, these six phrases. There's a noun for God's word. There's an adjective describing God's word. And there's kind of a verb clause telling you what it does. So look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Look for that pattern. The noun, the adjective, and then kind of a verb clause. Verse 7. The law, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you see what he's doing? He takes these synonyms for God's word and he just starts stacking them up. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules to show us the the comprehensiveness in his mind as it relates to God's word. That all of God's words are in view here. So you can't approach this book like peas or carrots on your plate that you don't prefer and you kind of shove them off to the side. You can't pick and choose the parts you like best and skip the parts you don't. You can't say, I like Jesus' miracles. I don't like his sexual ethic. It's comprehensive here. All of God's word is needed. All of God's word is in view. And notice each phrase has this of the Lord, with Lord in all caps. Did you see that? The first half of the psalm, talking about creation, uses a generic word for God. But not here. Now it's of the Lord. The personal name, the covenant name for God, we often say Yahweh, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses. Moses said to him, Who shall I say is sending me to the Israelites? God said, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am is sending you. Yahweh, just, I exist. That's who I am. I am. The eternal God who said to a people then and says to a people now, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's that Lord speaking through this word. And then the adjective. God's word is perfect. And then it's almost as if the psalmist says, you know, let me unpack perfect for you in case you didn't understand perfect. It's sure or trustworthy. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. The idea is sort of ethically clean and true. And then these these verb phrases to show what the word gets done. Notice them. Reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, spiritually speaking, enduring forever. And then it says righteous altogether, which kind of breaks the pattern, but it's poetry, so he's allowed to do that. Now, I think we could stop right there and go home, couldn't we? But let's take a deeper dive into the first three. Look again at verse 7. It says the law, the, the Torah, the, the instruction, the instruction of the Lord, it's, it's perfect, it's blameless, it's, it's without defect. 
same word used of the Old Testament offerings that had to be without blemish. God's word is like that. And notice the effect. It revives, restores the soul. And the, and the sense here is it causes you to be revived. It's not a wish. It's not an empty promise. The word gets that done. This word makes you revived. It restores you. The same words are used, slightly different sense, in Psalm 23. And the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then verse 3, he restores my soul. Same word, he restores my soul. Let me ask you, in 2021, do you want the shepherd who is the Lord restoring your soul? Do you want that? Here's the means he uses, his word. Restore, revive you. Or secondly, it says the testimony. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise. The simple, this word testimony often speaks of God's covenant, that committed relationship of love he has with his people. And this testimony is sure, it's, it's trustworthy. It's to be believed, it's to be banked on to be relied upon. And the effect, notice the effect, making wise the simple. Making wise simple. The simple appear a lot in the book of Proverbs. So this might relate especially to our teens here, our young people here. You, you might be in the book of Proverbs in ways considered the simple, and that's not a put down. It just means you're, you're growing up. You, you have maturing that you're doing, and you need help. You need training so that you don't go sideways and become a fool. That's the idea for the simple. It's like in Proverbs 9 when Lady Wisdom calls to the simple, turn here, come here and live. Don't go to the woman Folly's house. That's the way of death. Come to me and live. That's the invitation of God's word. Come to me and live. I'll make you wise in the sense of you'll live in the fear, in the awe and reverence of God himself. You'll live your life in awe of God. You'll be wise like that. Don't you want that? That kind of wisdom? a kind of reverence for God. Parents, this is a very hopeful verse. God uses his word to make wise the simple. If you're engaged in raising children right now, that's what you need. You need means by which those who are simple in your home are growing in wisdom. So, parent them with an open Bible, I've heard said. Or a boat open Bible app, <laughs> if you might have that instead today. As you again and again open God's Word in a family devotional time after dinner or in the morning, or again and again you instruct your children from God's Word, not, not as some kind of stick per se, look at how poorly you're doing, but a, but a carrot, the invitation, come and live, come and live. Hear these words from God and grow wise. Much hope and help here for parents. Then third, notice verse 8. 
Verse 8, the precepts, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Precepts are God's directions, His, His authoritative orders, His commandments. You could translate that. God's word comes with absolute authority. And so His precepts are to be obeyed. That's the sense. These precepts that are right, it says, not, not crooked, but, but straight, showing us where we are crooked ourselves, where we might be going off course. You need a straight precept to guide you back. But you might say that sounds kind of negative, Tab. I don't really like being told what to do, Tab. Neither do I. But notice the effect. Rejoicing the heart. Do you see that in verse 8? Rejoicing the heart. Gladdening the heart. Making us merry. Bringing, bringing happiness, you might say. Anyone want to sign up for that? If I had a sign-up sheet at the information table later on that says sign up for a heart that is rejoicing, would you go and sign up? I would. I hope you would too. As we embrace these right precepts, as we order our lives under their authority, the effect is joy, rejoicing. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he asks why the psalmist would delight in God's law. Why would you do that? Delight in God's law. It seems antithetical to our society. Delight in God's law. Why would you do that? And he said, it's kind of like this. It's like you are walking through mud, deep mud, and you're slogging through mud. You're barely getting through the mud. You're stuck in deep mud, and then suddenly your foot hits firm ground. Suddenly your foot hits something solid, a firm road to walk on. It's that kind of joy where life is just slogging through mud on your own, and then God puts you on firm ground to make progress in as you embrace his right precepts. That brings you joy. That delights your heart. And I think with just those three clauses, we can see the value of God's word already, can't we? The value pictured in verse 10. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Those are things everyone wants. Money in the bank. Sweetness on the taste buds. Financial security. A maxed out IRA. And the best chocolate cake you ever had. And yet he says, this word is better, more valuable, it's sweeter. He's saying, satisfaction guaranteed. So think about these benefits. Imagine, imagine I offered you a vitamin. I said, guaranteed. Guaranteed, this vitamin brings joy to your heart. 
It will revive your soul, and it'll even make you wise. Guaranteed. Would you want that vitamin? I mean, would you would you take that vitamin? Would, would you take it regularly? Would you value that vitamin? Or would taking that vitamin feel like, oh, duty, drudgery, such a drag? Probably not. And yet, isn't that how we often think about the intake of God's word? Why is that? Why don't these benefits resonate in our heart when it comes to Scripture? I think one reason is probably just simply the danger of familiarity. We are blessed with Bibles galore and Bible apps galore. You can do in-depth Bible study on your phone. That's crazy. What a blessing. And yet with the blessing of abundance, isn't there the temptation to take it all for granted? It's so familiar and no longer extraordinary, no longer precious to us. We get a kind of calloused heart because it's familiar for us. But maybe more often than not, Maybe more often than not, it's just our plain spiritual apathy. An apathy that hinders us. John Chrysostom was a famous preacher in the third and fourth centuries. He was so famous, he was nicknamed Golden Mouth. No one's ever called me that. <laughs> no, no one ever will, I'm sure. Golden Mouth, he is known to history he was one of the most influential expositors of Scripture in the early church. He once complained, however. He said, although people can tell you every detail of horse racing and choral dancing, whatever that is, they can tell you every detail of horse racing and choral dancing. They don't know the number of Paul's letters or from where he wrote them. Now, I don't know off the top of my head where Paul wrote all his letters from. <laughs> but we get the point, don't we? We get more excited about other things, he's saying. Maybe not horse racing and choral dancing. But politics, we're more aware of the details of every senatorial candidate in the state of Georgia than we are Paul's letters. Or sports or the latest news, or what's trending on our smartphones, a kitten playing the piano, the latest TikTok dance. Look, all fine things, all good things, all things that have their place, but we get more excited about those, don't we? And become apathetic about knowing and enjoying God in His Word. So friends, we must see our need and our privilege in light of Psalm 19. Let me just draw a couple of implications. Let's think about our need and our privilege in light of this psalm. Because the flow of thought you might be noticing, the flow of thought is from revelation to transformation. God reveals himself, 
in his word in particular, that he might transform us. This is where it's going, verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Or verse 14, here's where he lands. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's revelation unto transformation. It's a disciple's food so we can grow and be changed and transformed more into Jesus' image. We need this because the reality is you're always being discipled. You're always being shaped by something or someone. It might be CNN. It might be Fox News. It might be your favorite social media channel. But everyone's being discipled. Everyone's being shaped. The question is, who or what is most shaping you? Here's our need. Which voices are sweeter for you? More valuable to you? What's more shaping your outlook, your perspective? Political talk radio? The far right or the far left? Or this word from God? Is it shaping you? This law, this instruction that alone revives your soul. This is only word that provides true wisdom living in the, the awe and reverence of God himself, the only place that is altogether right, never crooked, never off, never wrong, so that your heart rejoices. This is our need, is it not? We will not mature, brothers and sisters. We will not mature as disciples without the book of all books. We've got to see our need for this book in light of Psalm 19. And I think also, I think also our privilege. I think our privilege as well. You should ask, why, why does this word have these effects? Reviving our souls. Rejoicing our hearts. To be honest, these are just words on a page put out by a printer, published by Crossway Publishing. It's, it's, they're just words on a page. How does all of this happen from this? Well, it's because they're inspired words. They're God-breathed words, God-exhaled words, where God himself meets you, where you have communion with God, fellowship with God, where you encounter God himself. Here in this word, you experience God. You have fellowship with him that he might revive your soul. Here in this word, you're met by God. You're met by God. You're helped by God so that he makes you wise where you are simple. Here in this word, you experience communion with the living creator himself so that your heart rejoices. As theologian Herman Bavinck put it in the scriptures, God daily comes to his people. Isn't that good? In the scriptures, God daily comes to you. 
So, here's my question. Again, we're just mainly making application now. Here's my question. How does that happen? Maybe a better question. How can you and I position ourselves in relation to this book so that we experience that communion with God, that fellowship with God, and His transforming effect through His Word? How do we position ourselves to encounter God like that? Well, I gave you a little insert in your announcements to that end. If you didn't get one, I'm sure we have more, and we'll email that to you. But it's a simple little approach that my friend Josh Fenska actually worked on years ago, and I wanted to give him credit since he's here. And it's simply that you read God's Word, you think about God's Word, and you pray from God's Word, and you repeat. <laughs> you read, you think, you pray. But let's just unpack this briefly. The, the read part, I would say, be intentional. Don't just, out of happenstance, hope you read something tomorrow. Be intentional. Have a plan. For me, I like a Bible reading plan because I need structure. I need someone to tell me what to do. So my Bible reading plan is a chapter in the Old Testament, a chapter in the New Testament. That's my approach. That can work. But don't make that your taskmaster where you've just got to check every box off. Remember the point. It's engaged with God. My wife, she prefers to just soak in one book of the Bible at a time. I know others do that. Eric, Tim, similar approach. And I think, to be honest, Sung, <laughs> Sung benefits more than I do from her times in God's Word. Probably many reasons for that, but I think her approach is a good one. She just soaks in a particular book. I need the structure. Do what works for you, but be intentional and be dependent. Ask the Spirit, meet me today, please, Holy Spirit. Give me illumination. Open the eyes of my heart. And then you think on what you're reading. Maybe if I was reading Psalm 19 today, I might be parking on verses 7 through 9. I can't thoroughly meditate, perhaps, on the whole thing. So I'm going to pick a little portion, and I'm going to think about it. I'm going to roll it over in my mind, maybe ask questions of the passage. What do I learn about God here? What do I learn about myself here? How do I see my need for Jesus here? And I'm just thinking on the passage. You don't want it to be like water rushing through a pipe. You want it to be more like a sponge experience where you absorb it's not an IV bag. It's not a feeding tube. The picture of meditation is, is a cow chewing the cud. You think of it that way. It's not just ingesting. It's digesting slowly. Slow down. Think about it. It's not just your eyes scanning the page. It's parking yourself on a verse or verses. And if you're a, maybe a parent of small children, maybe you're a mom with multiple kids, let me just encourage you here. One verse meditated on, one verse meditated on will bring more help to your soul than the entire Bible read and forgotten and unapplied. 
might be a slight exaggeration, but <laughs> I don't think by much. One verse that you meditate on in God's word, one verse that you think on, and you can do that tomorrow morning. And then you pray. You engage with God from your meditation. You allow your meditations on Scripture to be a springboard into fellowship with God. What can I adore God, praise God for here? What do I need to confess or thank God for or ask God for? So if I'm meditating on verses 7 through 9, I might praise God for giving such a perfect, true, trustworthy revelation. And then I might confess ways that I want to run to other things and get more excited about other things than news or sports or politics than His Word. And then I might thank Him for the soul-transforming effects of His Word. And I might ask for more, rejoice my heart, revive my soul more and more. And Lord, do it for my children, do it for my wife, do it in our church. You see what I'm doing? I'm reading, I'm meditating, I'm praying. It's revelation unto transformation in the context of relationship, in the context of fellowship, communion with God himself. So here's my exhortation to you as we start 2021. Here's my exhortation. Baptize your bucket list. Christianize your resolutions, your grace-motivated goals. Put enjoying God. Put communion with God. Put fellowship with God through his word at the very top and keep it there, brothers and sisters. For here you meet with God in Christ. Here you enjoy God through his son. This psalm, you might have noticed, is ascribed to David. But we need someone greater than David to bring us into communion with the living God, don't we? We need Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, as we saw last week. The Word made flesh who walked planet Earth. The one whose character matches the character of this written revelation. Perfect, sure, right, pure. The Son who is holy and righteous and true altogether. He is that Word made flesh without blemish. Blameless like those Old Testament sacrifices, though he made that sacrifice for you and for me and all who believe. He is the one who makes possible the restoration of our souls. He is the one who makes possible the rejoicing of our heart. He is the one who makes you wise where you are simple. He is the sum and center of this written revelation. And so we're going to close looking to Christ. Would Philip please come back and the ushers prepare to serve us the Lord's Supper. And as they're preparing, let me give you a moment to engage with God. To respond to the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you, you see that danger of familiarity and you want God's help right now. Or you see that spiritual apathy we can all be prone to. You're aware of things you're much more excited about than you are about God's word. Just acknowledge that to him right now. He's eager to forgive 
He is eager to help you. Maybe you're here and you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ. Embrace the Word made flesh. Who lived, died, and rose to bring you to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for a creation that is constantly declaring your glory. Open our eyes to see more and to marvel at this general revelation. But let us savor all the more this special revelation of your word. Guard us, we pray. Protect us from familiarity in our abundance of resources. Help us where we grow apathetic to be freshly amazed at the preciousness of this word that you breathed out. Remind us again and again of our need for this word and the privilege and the privilege of encountering you and enjoying you in and through your word. Would you help us in this way? Would you make us as a church a scripture-centered, word-centered, and therefore Christ-centered people. We ask you for this. May, may your holy scriptures dominate and infuse all of our ministries, all of our efforts, all of our times together in our small groups, our fellowship together, our personal quiet times, our family times together. We ask you that your word will be front and center for our good and for your glory. We thank you that we are praying in accord with your will as we pray these things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's end looking to Christ, the Word made flesh. We take the bread and the cup to celebrate what our Savior has done. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup saying, this is God's, God's covenant sealed in my blood, my sacrifice. And he said, drink from it in remembrance of me. And so we invite you, we invite all who have believed in just a moment to come to one of these serving stations and to feast on Christ by faith, to feast on the word made flesh for you. And for those who have yet to trust in Christ, we urge you to do so even now. Trust in the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus to bring you to God. And he will. When you're ready, please come.